Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live in the middle of a developing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my ass off so I could enjoy vacations. One day, I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently. So that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of about 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a bit left over to cover my habits. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this. 36-year-old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country. And they're trying their hardest not to stick out like sore thumbs. These are the stories of what life is like. Some good, some bad, but all entertaining. So sit back, relax, and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. And I promise you, this stuff can't be made up. Well, I got a friend of this south town. Loves to sit and burn one down. Spend some final on his stereo. Every now and then he speaks war. One terror duty on a foreign shore. Fighting for his way home. Yeah, fighting for his way home. Turning home to his native land Left New York for Texas man Quiet times in his cars He met a girl, she met a man Right to his knees and he took her hand A simple life ain't that hard No, simple life ain't all that hard I'm warning you, I'm grumpy Just when you think you have this whole podcast thing figured out to where you can record it and edit it and get it uploaded in a short amount of time and you're feeling pretty good about it. Nope. You get slapped in the face and 40 minutes worth of audio is completely gone. I walked up to my computer today to sit down and start editing the podcast that you're about to hear after I recorded it the first time. I walked up, and the pinwheel of death was just spinning as my computer was sitting there. So I let it sit for about another hour. Nothing happened. So then I force quit one of the programs, and it quit. And then when I opened it back up, everything was gone, even though I saved it. Thanks, Apple. Awesome. I know I frequently talk about my blood pressure. Well, right now it's pretty high. To throw grease on the deleted podcast file, fire, I've been dealing with this institution called INTUR, I-N-T-U-R. And INTUR is the government's acronym for we will figure out how to screw you over. No, I'm just kidding. They see tourism as an industry, which I guess it is. So what they did was develop a government organization to promote tourism, and that's called INTUR. And from what I understand, it's optional to join them, unless you have a hotel, then you're required. But it's, it's optional for us. But it's not optional for us either because we're trying to get classified as a tourism business through the government and then get a classification called the 306 classification, which allows us to import products without paying taxes on them. So we looked at importing some Hobie cats, which were small 
sailboats that you can sail like, you know, three to five people on them. And they're just open. They're good for putting on the beach and staying close and, and learning how to sail on them. So we were going to order some of those and have them shipped down. And the taxes came out to be 60%. Well, that wasn't going to fly. Keep in mind that 25% of Nicaragua's gross domestic product comes from import duties. Probably more than anything else in the economy. Import duties. So we're forced to get this 306 classification. And it's valuable. And the government knows it's valuable. So they don't make it easy to get. But before we can get that, we have to have a license from Intour. And if you know anything about Nicaragua, you know that they love licenses. Everything requires a license. You have to have a license to do business. You have to have a license to do this, license to do that. Well, to become classified as a tourism business is the same thing. You have to have an Intour license. You also have to have that to get the 306 classification that we so desperately need. So I got the list of everything that we needed for that Intour license and it was all in Spanish, and I couldn't make heads or tails of it. So I emailed them back, and I said, hey, is there any way you have this list in English? And I never heard from them again. So I decided it would be best to source this out to my friend Gretchen, who's Nicaraguan. She's worked with the government and kind of knows the ins and outs and do's and don'ts. So I said, look, here's the list of the stuff that we need. Let me know when you have it ready, and we'll go turn it in. So there's a guy in San Juan del Sur that works for Intour. And Gretchen sat down with him three different times to go over the list to make sure that we had everything. Well, he said we did. He said, go to Rivas, go to the Intour office, turn it in, and you'll get your license. To believe him was silly. We show up to Rivas. We walked in the office. There's two young girls sitting at a desk, probably about 22 to 24 years old, somewhere in there. Probably their first real job, and they loved it. For whatever reason, government employees feel the need to deny you on anything you want at any time for anything ever. So we walked in there with our list. Gretchen sits down with him and says, we need to get our license. Here's the list. Here's everything on the list. What do we do next? And before they even flip through everything, they're kind of looking back at each other going, no, 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 this isn't right. You, you're not sure. You know, you need this. We don't know about that. And Gretchen's going round and round with him saying, no, here's the list that you guys sent us. Here's everything on the list. We're done. They tried to say that we need a license from the, it's called the Department de Aquatico. It's kind of like their port authority. But in order to get that license, the boat has to be nationalized. But in order to nationalize the boat, we have to have the 306 law. So it's one of these typical Nicaraguan circular references that you can't have one without doing the other, but you can't have the other without doing the first one. And so I picture like, an Excel spreadsheet when you have like a circular reference and it says, you know, number sign REF. I want to get a stamp that says that. And every time those documents come up, I'm going to put that stamp on the paper before I turn it in. And I'm never going to tell them what it is. They're going to have no clue. They're just going to think it's some official stamp from the States because they love stamps. Anything has a stamp on it with like a seal, like a Texas seal or a U.S. seal, it's, you're golden. It's good to go. Stamps is how they mark things as, quote, official here. And they love to have official documents. So as they're going through the papers, and after they ask for the registration from the Department of Aquatico, we explain to them that that can't be done until the first part's done. And then they go, okay, um, well, you need a lease for your place of business. And we said, well, we're using a house for our place of business. And here's a rental agreement between Zach and the landlord. And they said, no, 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 this has to be an official legal paper. 
which here, all the legal documents are printed on its own paper. And it's this white paper with blue lines. It's got the seal of Nicaragua on it, and every single page is numbered. So you have to buy these pages from the government that have basically a serial number on them. And then that gets filed. And they have a huge database that shows the serial number and what the document is so that when you go to pull it up, you just go find the serial number and pull it out of their file cabinets, literally at their equivalent of the county clerk's office. So they wanted the rental agreement to be printed on that, which is completely made up. And they also said that the U.S. Coast Guard certificate of documentation needed to be in Spanish. We needed to have it translated. So we had to pay $250 to have that translated now. Finally, after going round and round with these girls, we finally make it into the main boss. And of course, the main boss overrides a couple of their little decisions, but then adds his own pile of things that we need. And so Gretchen tried arguing with him, saying, that, hey, you guys can't do this. You can't just give us a list, tell us what we need, tell us that we're right, and then add more stuff to it. He's like, oh, no, they, they changed that list. And we go, where's the new list? And he said, well, we don't, we don't have it yet. So for whatever reason... These government employees feel like it's their job to not let anything get through the cracks and not let anything be incorrect. And I, I think that they fear that their job's on the line. Like if something gets passed by them that's incorrect, I think that they fear they'll lose their job. I don't know why else they're so serious about everything. And let's keep in mind that this license, quote-unquote, is optional for most businesses. So... If I didn't have to be getting this license, I would have walked out of there and been done. But I did walk out of there. I stormed out of there in the middle of this guy's Senate. So I asked him, I said, so what, what can we turn in today? He goes, nothing. You can't do anything today. Your, your file isn't complete. And I just stood up and walked out. So I'm going to leave the rest up to Gretchen. I don't know if there's any need for me to go back. Another thing that they required, which was completely made up, was that whoever is submitting the application for this tourism license has to either be a resident or a citizen of Nicaragua. And that has to be spelled out on a legal paper power of attorney. Even though I'm shown as the president of the company on the corporate papers that we had there, that wasn't good enough. I needed to have a power of attorney saying that I could file for this in-tour license, but I couldn't do it because I'm not a resident. One thing after another. Which leads me to the residency situation. After I got this news... I immediately emailed the lady who's been working on my residency. I said, hey, what's the deal? I need to get this done ASAP. It's been turned in. They've had it for two months now. What's the deal? She writes back and proceeds to tell me that the immigration office is going through, quote, unquote, changes, and that they haven't issued residency since July. It's almost like tomorrow's November. And so she said she's got 15 people they're in the same position that I am. They've turned in all their paperwork, and they're just waiting. They can't give anyone an answer. They don't know how long it's going to take. No one even knows what's happening. They just, they're just saying that they're going through changes. How convenient would that be if I could pull that off? Just don't answer anything to anybody about anything. Just say, sorry, I'm going through changes. I'll get back to you. Wouldn't that be nice? Speaking of government employees, I heard something pretty funny the other day about what's happening with the protesters in regards to the canal. So if you haven't heard, there's a big canal in the works to cut through the middle of Nicaragua. And they want to go from the Caribbean side to the Pacific side. Just like the Panama Canal, but it's going to be a lot bigger. 
So this is a $50 billion project that the Chinese are supposed to be behind, although they can't really get any solid information from anyone. So a lot of people suspect it's just a big farce, it's a cash grab, and it's the president trying to gain ground in the political sector and put money in his pockets. I don't know enough to say. I suspect it'll never get done because they're too unorganized to handle a project like that. That's just my guess. Either way, there's a bunch of people that protest it. It's like the landowners and the guys out in the country who probably are in jeopardy of having their land taken away via eminent domain. And so they'll gather at little town squares and in little you know cities and they pick it and they walk around with signs saying that no canal, no canal, keep our country the way it is, don't cut our country in half. So now what the government does is that they take all their government employees and assemble, uh, they call it a march. So basically it's another protest to protest the protesters. So it's not people that are choosing to walk out there and say we want the canal. It's government employees. And they could be anything from like mayor's office receptionists to you know, county clerk filing people. Like it's just any government employee. So what they do is they load them up on school buses and they take them to more densely populated areas. And they stick them out there in the sun in the middle of the day, 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 95 degrees. And they make a march. And we drove past a section of them in Rivas. And there was some corner where they were all supposed to be gathered. And they were all huddled up in like a tiny little section of shade from a building. Like, poor people out there. I mean, they reminded me of cows like all piling up underneath a tree at noon. But as part of their job, they have to get out there and say that they're for the canal and that the people should not be marching against it. And that's what they're getting paid to do. Not very corrupt. All right, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. I know I tend to get on here and just vent sometimes, and I talk about all the things that are like frustrating, and yes, they're comical, and, and most of the time they provide for good content. But I'm going to talk about some of the things that I love about this country, because if, if the good didn't outweigh the bad, I wouldn't be living here right now. So in the grand scheme of things, it's fun. And thankfully, the pace of life is so slow here that it's okay to laugh at these things that take weeks that should only take a day. So I try to find humor in it. At the same time, I'd lie if I said that I wasn't frustrated. But there are plenty of good things about this country that I like that I'll miss whenever I move away from here. And the first thing is, is the chicken. For whatever reason, the chicken here is so delicious. Well, no, not for whatever reason. I'm pretty sure I know why it is. The chicken is just, it's bigger, like the breasts are bigger, juicier, like white meat. I mean, it's really good. It's superior to the U.S. chicken. And a lot of my friends know that, you know, I've done meat processing and uh, plenty of, you know, butchering of animals and, and that kind of stuff. So they'll ask me, like, why is the chicken so good here? They, and they always assume it, it must be because there's no hormones. Or there's no, you know, they don't pump them full of anything. And I always have to burst everyone's bubble and say, no, actually, it's the opposite. Like, they, and I don't know this for sure. I'm guessing, but it's pretty well educated. Here, they have an incentive to grow the chicken as big as they can, as fast as they can, as cheap as they can. Because if they can't do it cheap enough, people won't buy it. People don't have much money here. So they got to make the chicken as cheap as possible. They want to make the chicken breast as big as they can so they can maximize all their efficiency. So I suspect here that they are getting administered different hormones 
and vitamins that they don't give in the U.S., probably due to FDA regulations. I know that's not what everyone wants to hear, but it's the truth. But either way, the chicken's delicious, and you can't deny it. Back home, I would eat chicken maybe three times a month at home. Here, I eat it maybe four or five times a week. It's that much better. Another thing I love here is all the old people that you get to interact with on a regular basis. And I got to thinking about how it's different and what makes it different. Anyone who knows me knows I like old people. I like to sit there, talk to them, hear stories, hear about their life, the way things used to be. And back home, you don't really get the chance to do that because people, they move into like retirement centers and they kind of do their own thing and they're not out interacting in the public with people who are younger. Like you get to a certain age and you quit driving and you go live somewhere or you live with a family and you're not out at the store, you're not out buying things, you're just kind of doing your own deal. People will drive you to the store, but you're not really on your own. Here, old people, they live in their home until they die. And they interact and they get around and they shop and they buy things and they walk around and some of them, you know, they'll sell things, they'll still work as long as they possibly can. They don't really retire. And so you still get the chance to interact with those people on a regular basis. And so that's one thing that I love about this place is that, you know, I go to the barber shop, I get my hair cut, and the barber's dad is sitting there who used to be his barber shop. And a guy, he can barely see, he can barely hear. But when I walk right up close to him, he sees me and smiles, and his eyes are so cloudy you can't really see into him. But he's trying to make eye contact and shaking my hand and smiling and laughing. And that's something that's cool. We don't get to experience that in the States. I mean, I guess you do, but not nearly as frequently as here. Livestock crossing the road is something that I like about this place. And I know I've kind of griped about it before, but the other day I was driving down the road from town to my house and I was kind of in a hurry and I look up and some cows start crossing the road. And so I just hit the brakes and I look, they were coming down a little side street. And so I look up that side street and there's cows and horses running towards the road as far as I can see around this corner. So I just put the truck in park, sat there, and watched these cows cross the road. And I bet you it was every bit of 500 cows and horses combined. And then, you know, there was cowboys on their horses, kind of keeping them together, controlling them. One would stray off and he'd run them back in. And to me, that's, even though that doesn't happen in Texas, it's, it's still familiar to see guys on horses working cows and running them together. And so that's pretty cool. Like it can be frustrating at times when it stops traffic, but most of the time it doesn't really bother me. I'm happy to sit there and watch, especially a herd this size. I mean, it was big. It took about seven seconds from the first time you could see a cow until the last time you could see it. And they're running full speed. And we were sitting there at the road probably for five minutes, nonstop cows crossing, crossing, crossing. And then at the end, I was kind of mesmerized, and there was one horse that was still kind of a straggler. He was way back there. So I was kind of waiting for him, and the people were lined up behind me, and they're just laying on the horns like, oh, oh, yeah, I guess I should probably go. I got caught up in it and got kind of dazed and confused. But I definitely do like the horses and cows crossing the roads here. Another thing that's really cool about this place is that kids have responsibility in jobs. And I don't mean like jobs for money, but just jobs on the house. And they, you know, boys turn into men and girls turn into women faster. 
Because here you'll see a 12, 13-year-old girl carrying around a little baby sibling. They're walking with their umbrellas. They get the shade over the baby. And they learn how to care for, you know, people and kids at a very young age. You also see them out there with the moms doing the mom-type chores, you know, washing the dishes, washing clothes, because all their sink basins are outside. Well, not all of them, but the neighborhood that I drive through to get to my house, everyone does all their laundry and cooking and hanging out outside the house. So I get to see them outside working every time I drive into town. And you see the little girls doing the mom stuff and the little boys doing the dad stuff. Just yesterday, I saw a dad out there, and right now it's the rainy season, so there's tons of weeds and grass everywhere. So there was a dad out there with his machete, just hacking away at the grass. And there was this little boy out there right next to him, probably five, six years old, with a full-size machete, not like a little Tykes plastic play machete, but a real machete, swinging it just like his dad cutting the grass. And I was like, man, that's cool. That kid's learning how to be a man and do man stuff at a young age. There's no one out there telling him that he can't have that sharp machete. His dad's right there watching him saying, don't do this, you're going to cut your finger off. And the kid you know, either listens or he chops his fingers off. One time I saw a dad carrying a bundle of firewood on his shoulders, walking up this big steep hill. And I look up and then right behind him is his son, maybe six years old, seven, carrying a little six-year-old bundle of firewood on his shoulder. When we were in uh, Samoto Canyon, we were hiking back to the canyon and we're walking on this dirt road and there's a little family out there with their house. And there's like a six or seven-year-old kid and he's got a tree trunk that's probably four or five inches diameter, 12 feet long. It's very straight. He's got it leaned up against an existing fence. And he's got a machete. He's got the handle in his right hand. He's got the other side of the blade in his left hand. And he's running that thing down the tree trunk, scraping all the bark off. I don't know what he was going to do, maybe make fence posts or something with it, but he was cutting all the bark off. And as we walk by, his dog runs to the fence and just barking his face off at me and my dogs. And then my dogs just ignored it. We just kept walking. The little boy in Spanish was like, hey, shut up, get over here. And he never missed a beat. He was still scraping the bark from the tree trunk while he's correcting his dog. And the dog listened to him and turned around and ran off. And I was like, man, that's not something you'd be accustomed to seeing a seven-year-old doing. Using a machete to scrape off a tree trunk and correcting a dog for inappropriate behavior at the same time. I wanted to go steal him and make him my own kid. But those are just a few examples of how kids here, uh, they learn responsibility, and and they they learn to take care of themselves because no one else is going to do it. There's no regulatory agency that's going to make sure that they get fed or there's no one's going to hand them money if they're hungry to go buy stuff. They, they sort it out on their own. They make it work. And to me, that's admirable. Families here are just much more cohesive. They stick together. It's not uncommon for three generations to live in a house, ranging from kids to grandparents. And they don't just live together. They hang out together. You'll see a family at the beach you know, that may have four or five kids from ages four to 18, and then the parents and the grandparents, and sometimes some aunts and uncles. And I think back to when I was 18, like the last place that I'd want to go is to hang out with my parents and grandparents. Although today, they'd probably be the first people that I want to hang out with. But back when I was 18, I thought I was too cool. Well, here they're happy to hang out with them. And you'll see a 15, 16-year-old boy, you know, walking with his grandmother through the middle of town, like holding an umbrella over her to keep the sun off her. And uh, anyone who says that that, is not as good as the way we do things in the U.S., I challenge them because I think it's better. 
it's just a more cohesive culture altogether. I've talked about before how big boxing is here and what they do is, you know, they broadcast the boxing match on regular TV so no one has to pay for it and then they sell commercials. So what people do in town, they'll pull their TVs outside and rig it up so everyone can gather around their TV and watch the boxing match. So the other night there was a boxing match and everyone had pulled their TVs outside and it's nice because you could walk from one point in town to the other and watch the fight on the way. And so that's what people do. Like you'll walk down the street, you'll see the fight, you'll stop, watch it. And then all of a sudden it's between rounds, it goes to commercials and then you continue on. And then when you see it pop back up, you stop and watch it again. And they're happy. Like you sit there, just walk up to a strange family, you know, all gather on the TV watching it and you can start cheering with them and they'll just turn around and high five you. And during the commercials, if you do stick around and don't walk off, they'll just start talking to you and treating you like family. So altogether, it's just a more, it's a more cohesive culture. They all stick together. They hang out together. They shop together, which is kind of frustrating when you're not used to that. But all in all, I think it's cool how they stick together and help each other out. Speaking of help each other out, the other day I decided it was the first time, and I'm not proud to admit this really, because, well, in the past... I've taken great pride in washing my vehicles, keeping them clean, keeping them waxed. Not like the OCD type, but I definitely like to have a clean, tidy, organized vehicle. So I've always taken pride in washing it, waxing it myself, and making it look good. Well, here, I've had this truck for about four months, and I hadn't washed it myself yet. Now, it's been washed between Ronnie and the car wash guy in town. It's been clean. And you can get a full hand wash and detail for like six bucks here. That's inside, outside, tires, armor all, everything, $6. So that cheap, it's really hard to find the motivation to go out in the heat and do it. But the other day, I got some stuff wrapped up earlier than what I planned. So I came home and decided I was going to wash and wax the truck. And I didn't know how to tell Ronnie that I didn't want his help, but I just kind of wanted to do it on my own. You know, when you wash and wax your own truck, it's like your chance to bond with it. You get to see all the little scratches, all the imperfections. Here, you get to learn what all's loose from the bumpy roads. But anyway, first I went to, I popped the hood, and I was going to change the air filter. So I asked Ronnie, I said, hey, uh, we got a Phillips head screwdriver because this thing's all rigged up, and someone had put some wood screws to hold on my air filter. So I needed a Phillips head screwdriver. Ronnie said, uh, yeah, he goes and gets it. I said, what about needle-nose pliers? He goes, no, but Ismail does. So I called Ismail. Ismail brought up his needle-nose pliers. I kind of get everything wrapped up, and I see Ronnie go to get the uh, little electric pressure washer, and I'm thinking, oh, good, he's going to let me wash it. He insisted on helping me. He wanted to just do it. He wouldn't, didn't want me to help, but I said, no, I, I really want to wash it. And he said, okay, but I'm going to help you. And then Ismail decided he was going to help. It kind of got my anxiety up a little bit because whenever I wash a vehicle, there's a certain way that I like to do it, a certain way I like to wash, a certain way I like to rinse. And I like to think it's very efficient. I can wash a vehicle in a little amount of time. Well, I don't think Ismail's ever washed a vehicle, number one. And number two, Ronnie's method doesn't coincide with my method. So the long short of it was, it looked like a monkey circus out there, three people, trying to wash a truck with one of them who probably never washed a truck in his life. People were turning around, kicking over soap, 
They were climbing up on tires that had already been cleaned with muddy feet, trying to wash the roof, getting overspray on parts of the truck that had already been dried. And I think they could sense my frustration because at one point I was like, guys, just stop. Just stop what you're doing and just let me tell everyone what to do. (laughs) And they kind of appreciated that because I think it was frustrating to them too. But nobody wanted to quit to make room for the other people to wash the truck. So after about an hour and a half of the shenanigans, we got it sorted out. We got the truck finished. Ismail took off. And then I showed Ronnie how to wax the truck. And he didn't know what wax was, what the purpose was, how you applied it, how you take it off. He didn't know anything. So he had a good long lesson in truck waxing. Then I had explained him things like you don't armor all the tires before you wax the truck because then the armor all from the tires will attract the dust from the wax when you dry it off. He's like, oh, okay, okay, it makes sense. So he's still not allowed to hold the wax because the one time that they waxed my truck in town, man, they put wax all over everything that you're not supposed to put wax on. They just run it over seams. They get it on the window trim. They get in all the rubber that you're not supposed to. And to me, that's like, it hurts my heart to walk up to a truck and see white lines from wax that got baked under rubber. So he probably, probably won't ever be checked out to run the wax, at least not on my truck. But he's making progress. Alrighty, I think that's going to wrap up today's show for the second time. I make sure to hit save every 15 seconds on this one, even though it probably won't matter. I'm going to have to go to the Mac store when I go home in December, see if I can't get a tune-up on the old computer. Because it's getting really tired. But granted, this thing is like seven years old. So I'll have to give it that. Can't get too frustrated because the Dell that I had lasted 18 months. So happy to pay more for a Mac. I do find it amusing, though, how there's two different teams. There's like Team Mac and there's Team PC. There's Team iPhone, there's Team Android. And everyone feels like they have to defend their own choice of team and explain why it's better. And I just think that's comical. I think that's, I don't know if it's insecurity. I don't know what it is. But it's, it's especially the Android people. And I think it's because they're a minority and they feel like they have to defend their choices against the masses. But whenever people go on like Android rants, I just kind of probe them. And, and, and I'll complain about the iPhone a little bit and then, they, and then they just get all worked up and they start going these, and they think they got me. And then I'll come back with something like, yeah, but all in all, you can't really beat an iPhone, and then walk away. People just get so worked up. Same thing with Ford and Chevy and Dodge. They feel like that whatever they have is the best. And I read an article the other day about car sales and how someone will go out there and they'll do all kinds of research and they'll read consumer reports and they'll figure out, they'll find the best car that lasts the best for the most economical price and the best fuel mileage and it's got the best ratings but then if they have one friend that had a bad experience oftentimes they can lead them away from that decision i thought that was pretty funny but you're not here to listen to me talk about articles i read so that's it thanks again for listening life in paradise podcast check out our website nika sale and surf.com appreciate you listening keep it tranquilo and happy halloween freedom came my way Like a jet plane in an out of sight Oh, I was hauling ass at a million miles an hour 
wondering how hard I'd hit. They came into the station. They said I was bad beyond repair. But I got no qualms with my situation. Singing, here I am. So, sing, Cherie, 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 won't you dare to? Sing, Cherie, 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 won't you dare to? Leave a message and your number, please. And take the time to want to satisfy me. Pick up my fantasies and send them all care of me. Singing, hey, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. Now I'm taking my chances on the wind. Now I'm packing up all of my bags. Yeah. Now I'm taking a chance that I've got to take. And I am glory bound So I packed it up and I, I went out on the winds for a while And I lived out of a VW bus for a year or two Ain't nothing but a pop dream in my guitar Living off of Applefields, an old cigar Digging this microphone and I'm checking it out every night on the lawn. Oh, the car battery's dead again, but I've got my head. I got it dead set against it. Think, say, Cherie, 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 won't you dare to sing? Cherie, 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 won't you dare to sing? Cherie, Cherie, Leave a message and your number, please. And take the time to want to satisfy me. And pick up my fantasies and send them all care of me. Singing, hey, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. I'm taking my chances on the wind. Packing up all of my pain. Yeah. Now I'm taking a mistake that I've got to take. Oh, and I am glory bound. Yes, I'm bound. I've never sang into a mic and I had headphones on. Don't you feel special? I do. 